You're listening to the National Health Executive's Finger on the Pulse podcast with me, your host, Matt Roberts, to guide you beyond the headlines with news, views, and insider truths from across the healthcare sector. Welcome back to this episode of NHE's Finger on the Pulse podcast. And on today's topic of conversation is video consultation. It's something that seems to have been a bit of a buzzword during the pandemic, the last 12 months, but they've been happening for a very long time before that. Um, and I'm delighted today to be joined by sort of one of those digital forward thinkers, someone who saw the power of um, video consultation long before the, uh, the situation. So from Bart's Health NHS Trust, I have Dr. Shanti Vijayaragathan. So we'll jump across to yourself first, just if you could introduce who you are, your role within the, uh, the trust. Um, thanks for inviting me. Um, my name is Shanti Vijayaragathan. I'm a consultant, diabetologist and endocrinologist at um, New Home University Hospital, which is part of Bart's Health. Perfect. Um, and we're also joined today by Will Warburton, Director of Improvement at the Health Foundation. Um, it's great to have you back on, Will, because you've, you've been recently on another episode as well. So um, for yourself as well, could you just introduce yourself and your role within the Health Foundation? Uh, thanks very much, Matt. And I enjoyed the last one tremendously, and I'm glad it looks like you did if you've invited me back. So it's good to be with you again. Um, my role is I'm Director of Improvement at the Health Foundation. We're a charity um, uh, whose mission is to improve health and healthcare in the UK. And our role here is that we've um, funded some of the work that Shanti's led and supported evaluation and wider learning on video consultation rollout in the NHS. Amazing. And that is very much um, the reason we're here. As I alluded to in the introduction, video consultation is something that is being talked about a lot in the NHS currently. But Shanti, I believe your team as far back as even 2011 were sort of looking at video consultation as a potential tool to improve care that's delivered. Um, What were sort of the reasons behind um, you choosing to look at um, video consultation back then, which was quite an early adoption of that sort of solution. Mm. Um, yes, so so for people who are not familiar with Newham, it's in East London and it's quite a deprived borough. Um, more than 70% of the population is um, South Asian and Afro-Caribbean. And um, what, we also have a lot of diabetes because of the demographics of the population there. So what happened, what tends to happen is we, we have an ever-increasing demand for diabetes care within the hospital. Um, also, we have a very we used to have a very high incidence of people who never turned up for their appointments. Mm-hmm. So there was this constant battle about how do we get people to turn up, and this is despite the fact that we were offering telephone appointments and doing a lot of work with primary care. So at that time, um, I was contacted by NHS Choices in 2010, and they wanted us to trial video web-based appointments to see if it would work for people who didn't require physical examination. And so I did a very small pilot and the patients absolutely loved it, but this was in a very small group of adolescents. Mm -hmm. So we thought we needed to test it out and I was very grateful to the Health Foundation in 2011 for awarding our project the the Shine Award. And so we did a year's piece of work um, looking at uh, it was basically a proof of concept study looking at whether we could replace some of the appointments that didn't need to happen face to face where people didn't need to be examined with video consultations. Mm-hmm. And uh, as as these things happen, one thing leads to another. And um, we did a lot of work over the last nine or 10 years with Professor Greenhalgh and her team in Oxford 
um, with work funded by both the Health Foundation and the NIHR, um, looking at um, how we could um, replace some of the appointments that didn't require a person to physically attend with online care. And uh, we initially started using um, a very defined piece of video consultation software, but then a lot of patients said to us, look, why don't we use Skype? Because people were using that socially. Mm-hmm. And so we then started using, again, thanks to the Health Foundation, we got some money and we started using this for people um, who didn't repeatedly attend outpatient appointments, but then tended to come up to A&E when there was a problem. So for the people who were kind of termed serial non-attenders, and then that was all happening just within my clinic and my nurses clinic. So we then, um, thanks to Trish Greenhalgh and her team, did a piece of work with the NIHR, looking at how we could do it in other specialties outside diabetes, but within Bath's Health. Um, and then we were very grateful to the Health Foundation again for awarding us some funding from the Scaling Up funds to look at how we could roll this outside Bath's Health elsewhere in the country. Mm-hmm. So that's been going on for the last 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose, obviously, we touched on there that this has had huge benefits for the patients, particularly those that sort of either reducing the amount they have to travel to hospital, Mm -hmm. which is a real consideration, especially in deprived areas. It's not just Mm -hmm. going to hospital, it's the trip trip there. But also, I imagine it's had a massive impact for staff as well. You mentioned DNA rates have dropped significantly. Mm -hmm. That time's not being wasted, doesn't it? It's had a huge impact. Obviously, one size doesn't fit all, and um, everybody uh, doesn't necessarily want to use video consultations. But yeah, so it's for the patients. It was travel, taking time off work, mothers who had parents who had childcare problems. You know, some of the older patients required a family member to take the morning off work, for example, to bring them for an appointment. You know, some people who come from quite a distance. Um, you know, we have a cancer service that uses it, and a lot of patients' relatives had to take time off and check into a hotel the night before to bring their 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 a parent to something for an appointment. So there were the financial costs, yeah. and then a lot of patients said something quite interesting. So they said, um, you know, it also improved their engagement because they kind of felt more in control of the process if they did it online from their home rather than coming to a hospital clinic, for example. For us, it was a question of, you know, being more efficient about the way we structured our clinic, um, um, you know, reducing some of the costs around patient transport, for example, uh, better utilizing our patient space. And there was quite a lot of interesting stuff. So, for example, the the recent uh, scaling up project that we did with the Health Foundation, we were using it in different trusts across the country. Uh, so my colleagues in Oxford run a very specialist orthopedic clinic and he had people traveling internationally to come for annual cancer surveillance, for example. So, you know, that incurred a lot of cost and logistic problems. So, you know, both the staff, the patient, the service, we found there was lots of things that one could do to make services more efficient, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And as Shanti is very, um, very expertly mentioned throughout, obviously, Will, the Health Foundation played a big role in making this go from what was a very good idea into becoming a real tangible sort of delivery across. As a sort of, in your role as Director of Improvement and in what the Health Foundation does in helping support and fund a lot of these projects, how important is it that these projects, as we've described just there, they don't just necessarily deliver a clinical benefit, but they also deliver a genuine sort of human benefit to the patients and to their lives and 
to the sort of all-encompassing um, benefits. Yeah, I mean, that's the absolute essence of it is the patient benefit. And in this case, you've got the reduced cost, the convenience, the time saved. Um, uh, as Chelsea describes very well, you know, a much more person-centered model in, very, in, in many cases with the patient in their own home and their own environment. And that's a huge benefit. Now, what's interesting, though, is that it sometimes takes external funding like ours to enable clinical teams to experiment with things like this because um, there's, it, it takes a huge amount. I mean, it's fascinating that this has been a 10-year journey, and then I might come to this later, there's been this incredible acceleration due to the outside circumstances changing. But patient benefit on its own, sadly, sometimes isn't enough to get an innovation going. It takes a lot of organizational buy-in, it takes clinical champions like Shanti, it takes a financial and a business case. Um, and actually, Shanti might come onto this, it was actually quite a lot of barriers that we came up against in terms of trying to make this shift, even though it's got all these significant advantages for, as Shanti quite rightly said, certain groups of patients. Very important to emphasize this is not suitable for everyone all of the time, but for those patients with a chronic condition, relatively stable, who just need a, you know, a blood test result or uh, some reassurance, then why are we making them travel 40 minutes, wait for another 30 minutes? You know, it would take a whole day out of people's lives when we do that. So, you know, we're very, we put a lot of emphasis on the patient benefit, but recognize sometimes that it takes, it's actually really hard to get those things going from within the NHS without a bit of extra help. Um, and one of the things you alluded to there, obviously, well, was barriers. And um, I suppose, Shanti, you will be best positioned to ask this. But from someone who sort of was a champion for video consultations long before they've become what they have, we know as them now, um, were there any really particular challenges you faced in sort of generating a bit of that buy-in, that understanding from colleagues, from the trust, or even from patients? Um, to move to what is, I imagine, quite a new concept to some of them. Yes, absolutely. It's quite interesting, the whole journey, because um, like with any change project, I think it takes a bit of time before you get critical mass and it's not just a few patients like it very much and so can we have it? So, you know, in terms of the patients, not everybody was fond of video consultations to start with and, you know, we had to use the people who were willing to try it and then they, they needed to try it a few times to get the hang of it. So, you know, some people tried it once and didn't necessarily like it, and that's fine. But once they tried it a few times, they, they kind of liked it and got the hang of it and carried on using it. Um, similarly for staff, I think the biggest barrier to some extent was staff perception. I mean, most clinical staff do like the idea of bringing someone to their clinic and, you know, talking to them and, there's a worry that you'll miss things if you don't actually see someone face to face. And, you know, um, so it took a bit of getting used to that, you know, actually patients, apart from the convenience, sometimes they just do uh, find uh, this a more kind of person centered as well said approach. And that, you know, if people do like it. And if you did want to examine someone, you can. But if you wanted to just have a, a conversation about a treatment plan or something like that. There was no reason why you can't do that online in a in a physical environment that the patient uh, feels comfortable in, for example. So that took a bit of getting used to. We were also very grateful to our academic partners, you know, Professor Greenhardt and her team, because we 
were able to at every step evaluate it and get outcomes and publish materials. It was peer reviewed and it had academic credibility. There was also a lot of organizational change to accommodate video consultations. So there's no point just taking a standard pathway and plonking a video call in the middle. Uh, you know, you're required to change the pathway. So different people then have different roles. You know, you might not have your clinic nurse weighing the patient outside, but then you can use that clinic role nurse to do something more clinically useful. So it requires changing roles. It requires changing the pathway. It then required a lot of um, what we call action research with the NIHR producing uh, stuff around governance and guidance documents and so on. And then we had to do a lot of work around tariff and you know how this is um, used within the NHS, how it's used within ser- different services. So there was kind of wider organizational issues. And we then had to work with different organizations in different specialities where, you know, what worked with, for me within the diabetes part may not work in Northumbria, where uh, different community services were using it. So, yeah. um, yes, so there was a fair bit of work to do. Interesting work. Definitely. And and that is a very big part of it, isn't it? That um, in whenever we bring these, in this instance, video consultation, but any sort of new treatment or solution, it's very much about striking the balance. We're not there to drop a solution on someone and say, all you've known is going out the window. This is the new way. It's about merging it in and making sure that everything works well for the patient, for the clinician, as we've mentioned earlier in today's episode. While it moves power to the patient and in their living room, we have to acknowledge it's moving it away from the clinician. So there's elements that have to be balanced on all sides. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And that takes time. And we'll probably come to it, but to some extent, the recent pandemic has actually helped to some extent because we've all had to think differently about how we provide and use services. And I suppose to yourself, Will, as well, um, you probably see this on a, a more wide scope, but that is very much, I imagine, a role that the Health Foundation, when they're supporting these projects, have to uh, do in changing that mindset to not just think of it as an innovation, but think of it as reviewing how processes are made um obviously with physio consultation the past 12 months have sort of forced us into that change but that's not always the case a lot of the time these barriers they simply need a a mindset change and i imagine external sort of voices going into that can have quite a powerful impact yes that's that's right and i think that's why we encourage this kind of holistic quality improvement type approach and looking at this as a whole um change process um, as opposed to, as you rightly say, it's not the simple introduction of a bit of technology. I think if anyone ever tells you that introducing a bit of technology is simple, you know, there's probably a little bit of uh, experience that they need to, to, it's a game, because exactly as Shanti describes, it's a holistic change that needs change management with the patient, with the clinician, the clinic team, with the organisation, and then with the system as a whole. And we tend to see this pattern with innovations that we support, those proofs of concept that work in one area um, and that work in teams, they then have to go through quite a process of change over a period of time before they get ready for and are able to get national scale. And we often see national policy beginning to adjust only after six, seven, eight, nine years to recognize the change in practice that's come about. You know, a nice example of that is the, the white paper that's just come out is going to fully enable a process called discharge to assess, not a technology 
change this one, but about getting patients assessed um, uh, by social care at home rather than in hospitals, which again was an innovation that we, um, one of our programs pioneered around nine or 10 years ago. And it takes time to build this evidence. It takes time to work out um, how it works. It takes time to persuade and convince people that this is a good solution. The, the, the 64, well, the 150 billion pound question, if you think about the size of the NHS, is how could we do that faster? You know, how, what is, are there ways we could accelerate that? What would help? Because if you look at the scale of the challenge we're now facing post-pandemic, then we're going to need to up the rate of innovation to be able to meet all of the unmet needs and everything that's going to be facing us over future years. Definitely. And I suppose that is a very apt point um, in, in view of my next question, which is that this does take quite a long time to sort of um, gather the evidence. And sometimes in gathering that evidence over a period of time, we can challenge some of the things we've already known. At the start, when you were describing the project, Shanti, you mentioned that the area where first pioneered is an area that has quite a bit of deprivation within it. And one of the big challenges we've heard constantly over the last 12 months in relation to video consultation is around the digitally disadvantaged. But I noticed one of the things to come out of sort of the data um, with this project was that it kind of challenged some of the ideas or some of the immediate thoughts of who those disadvantaged necessarily were, that it wasn't always as simple as just socioeconomic status or ethnicity. And all of that, I imagine, comes down to making sure that there is the research, there is the likes of the peer review that you mentioned. No, I mean, absolutely. It was quite an interesting experience for me because I've always worked in East End and you do have some preconceived ideas about what is possible with certain demographics. And we had got data about broadband usage in East London when we started the project in Newham. And we were quite surprised to find that the broadband usage in Newham was actually higher than the national average. And we got thinking, and it seemed pretty obvious when we started looking at it, because uh, you know, if your family live elsewhere, you do use broadband to make overseas calls and people were using Skype to keep in touch with family and friends across the world. So once you actually asked why that was, it became quite obvious. And um, it was also a very young borough. Mm -hmm. So people were quite receptive to the idea of using virtual consultations, online consultations. So just grouping the population as Asian, South Asian, socioeconomically deprived, I think missed the bigger picture. And so what we then, and it also helped us um, get over a lot of preconceived myths. So, you know, we've had some very elderly people uh, quite happy to use online care. You know, they all get dressed up in their suit and sit down in front of the video camera. And when you ask them, it's because they have kept in touch with grandchildren who live elsewhere or, you know, different parts of the world. So they have used it. and I said, we also used uh, video consultations when one of the liver cancer clinics as part of an NIHR project that we did. Um, and the idea was that you can't break bad news online and you should actually see someone face to face. And we actually, um, a lot of the, the team actually started talking to patients about cancer diagnosis online. And then we have some very powerful films made where people say, look, if you're going to tell me bad news, I'd much rather I'm at home and you tell me the news when I'm at home and then I can just go make a cup of tea, have a cry and get on. But if I'm coming to your clinic, I have to take public transport, you then break bad news. 
I then have to make a journey back home alone on public transport and it's emotionally difficult. So it did open up um, some, I mean, it just for me, it was a learning experience. But in terms of this whole digital um, access, um, it, it is a tricky one because uh, some some of the groups who really don't attend and who would benefit don't have access to online care. And so we've been looking at the moment at various options. You know, there are people like health advocates and we're trying to see if we can train up the health advocates to help people use online care. About 20% of the people we thought suitable for online care couldn't use it because um, they didn't have access to good quality computers or things like that. And so we've been talking to some of the local charities and organizations about them, whether there might be a hub where they could come and use it, for example. So it's got us thinking about how we can address some of that, but uh, we just started doing that work. I suppose that is one of the key things as an innovator on sort of leading a project like this one of the things you have to always be conscious is is asking questions and challenging perceptions because ultimately what works for patients we can only find out when we engage with those patients and that's very true i mean a lot of the work and again we were very grateful to the health foundation a lot of the work over the last 10 years has been really talking to patients so you know a lot of our outcomes are very strong qualitative projects where we've done a lot of work um, doing focus groups with patients, um, asking the questions, as you say, with interviews and questionnaires and so on. And and a lot of work that Trish and her team did was even just looking at things like using of props and eye movements when you do an online consultation versus what happens when you call someone to a clinic. And it's quite interesting because the webcam is in front of you. Um, people actually think they have your undivided attention when you're talking online rather than when you're in a clinic space and you have lots of interruptions with people constantly opening the door and going in and out and uh, you know you're looking at the camera you're, you're looking at the patient and then you're looking at the computer for the results and you're making notes and so on and and they think there's more interruption whereas when you're looking at it online they actually think they have more of your attention so like you say a lot of this is possible only when you actually talk to patients and and get feedback at every stage yeah definitely and i suppose um from your point of view will as well um we what we touched on there the idea that it's little sort of innovations like a video camera making it seem like you have more time and your attention solely on the patient they're really small sort of wins effectively we have in the nhs but that is a massive part of us improving our care as well um sort of in a lot of the work that health foundation does in supporting these projects is that a very key consideration for yourselves as well making sure that it's not just the big top level successes and innovations that we focus on it's the little bits of learning we pick up along the way as well that's right i mean it, in the end um healthcare is deeply personal and individual business and a lot of the time at health vision we deal with very high level statistics uh, and my colleagues have just commissioned a survey published by um the ada lovelace institute which focuses on inequalities in digital health and that'll tell you that at the top level that you know 36 percent of people over 75 actually don't have access to 
um, smartphones or broadband or 13% of people with long-term conditions and a disability don't have that access, whereas that compares to 6% of the general population. So these are really important things to pay attention to at the macro level, but it's only actually once you get into the local care context that you really start to get this rich picture and you challenge these assumptions in the way that Shanti is describing. So you have to match this big picture quantitative analysis so that government pays attention to questions like access to broadband, because we can't solve that from within this project, but it is a utility. The pandemic again has shown that now in terms of both health and education, you know, there's a huge risk of inequalities if there isn't consistent high quality access to broadband across the country. But then you need this richness that comes from actually trying and learning on the ground and to marry those up so you don't make assumptions off the top of that national data. And exactly as Shanti said, do it in different contexts. I mean, I love that, I love that this has been done in Newham, which is one of the youngest, most di diverse parts of the country. And it's been done in Northumbria as well, where it's almost the direct, you know, reversal. You've got, you know, a quarter of the population there are over 65 and only 3% of people there are non-white. Um, so, you know, you've got to try and see what works in those different contexts. And the drivers that Shanti spoke about in Newham, you know, people being used to communicating over long distances, having this access in rural settings, that's going to be a whole new set of benefits in terms of the travel time. Um, Shanti and I briefly touched on a conversation on carbon, which we haven't come on to yet. You know, the NHS has a carbon target of being net zero by 2040. Um, a huge contribution to that is going to come from reducing travel um, travel that patients do, travel that staff have to do. Um, so yes, absolutely, you've got to have that big picture view, but use local experience and uh, to, to to make sure that um, you really enrich that big picture view. Absolutely. Um, and one of the sort of things we touched on, we've touched on throughout sort of this episode, but it's important that we, we talk through the project because it's gone on long for a lot longer than the pandemic but that has had a significant role it's changed healthcare immeasurably in the last 12 months i imagine shanti as somebody and as a team that has had a bit of um quite a lot of experience with video consultation long before the pandemic the transition into sort of clinics having to be done more remotely was probably a little bit i don't want to say easier because i don't think any sort of anything of the early pandemic stage was easy for anyone in healthcare but it probably made it a little bit more manageable in that patients and yourselves as staff had a little bit more experience in what to expect in that change quite interesting so we had uh, the health foundation uh, funded us the scaling up grant um was the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, I think. It seems a blur now. Uh, and um, we, we had very modest ambition at that time. So we wanted to scale it up within Bart's Health, within the other specialties where it was suitable. And we picked up three or four external organizations. And as Will says, there were different demographics. And we wanted to test it out and see how it might work in rural Northumbria, in Norfolk and Norwich, in Oxford, where they have this super speciality service. So the idea was to research this with our colleagues um, in Oxford and to see how it might work. And as part of that, we produced um, a lot of uh, guidance documents for all these organizations. And we produced patient videos on how to use online consultations. And uh, we produced a lot of SOPs and business cases and um, 
did a lot of work with um, NHS improvements about tariff. Um, we also started doing a pilot with Attend Anywhere in 2019. And they'd been using this, so prior to that, we'd been using Skype. And in 2019, they suggested to us that we'd, we want to be one of the early pilot sites to use uh, Attend Anywhere, which was being used in Scotland for video consultations and would be tried out. And we realized that Skype was difficult to scale up nationally. Uh, and so we said we'd do that. And so we'd started setting up some clinics on Attend Anywhere. And then, of course, we were delighted because we had five services within Bath's Health, four external trusts, and we thought we had enough to write up a report for the Health Foundation. And then along came the pandemic. Um, and then what happened is it, it just gained momentum because um, everybody had to use non-face-to-face -face care, at least in the early months of the pandemic. Mm. And we just felt we were in a better place because we'd certainly tried this. Within the organization, there was a lot of buy-in. We'd had a lot of the paperwork done, as it were. We had a lot of the guidance. So we felt we were better able to deal with it. Uh, we certainly had processes in place. So, you know, for example, the scheduling team could just put together outpatient schedules overnight for video consultations which actually takes a very long time because you have to change everything from the letter which asks the patient to come to clinic 20 minutes before mm. to you do not have to attend. This is an online consultation. So, you know, little things like changing the appointment letter takes a long time on a, on a national template, as it were. So we felt we were in a better place, but it was also a huge learning experience for us because we were suddenly talking to trusts across the country uh, who just wanted to set it up very quickly. And uh, we had to think on our feet as they did about how they might modify what we were using in orthopedics in East London for orthopedics elsewhere, for example. So, um, yeah, so it, it, it helped. We thought we were in a good place. We'd already used to attend anywhere. And that's what the government was recommending that we use as far as possible. So we already had the licenses and we could just roll it out and um, you know, so and we could show people how to use this. It was pretty much, you know, this is what I'm doing. Come and sit in my room and see how I'm doing it and then go away and do it. So that was easy for us. But it also made us think about how this might have to be modified in different settings. I think that's always one of the great benefits of the NHS is though although every trust is its own organization we're all collectively under one banner which means mm. there is a lot of that sharing that learning yes. can be done collaboratively and in a situation like the pandemic being able to turn to those who maybe have trialed stuff or maybe have been sort of pioneers in it is an invaluable resource um, and I suppose similarly to that Will, from your point of view, obviously, as an organisation that, while outside of the NHS, is very interlinked with it, um, I imagine it was quite a nice benefit for yourselves to be able to see that the work and the projects that you are backing in the likes of Shanti can be scaled out, albeit probably at a much faster pace than was ever imagined, um, and be able to sort of see the support and the learning that you'd fostered early on be shared much wider. I mean, there's a very nice parallel here to the last conversation we had with Annie Laverty about building 
their capability for staff experience and understanding staff experience in Northumbria. And when they set off doing that, they didn't know that a pandemic was coming. And when Shanti began this 10 years ago, she, well, I don't know, she's got, she's got great vision, but even Shanti probably didn't know that this was coming. Um, <laughs> and um, and this is about, this is, innovation helps you build resilience. You might set off with one goal, but actually when another problem comes along, you're better positioned to prepare for that. In Northumbria's case, they were better able to support their staff through this incredibly difficult experience. And in this case, the pioneering work that Shanti and others had done meant the NHS was better positioned when we needed to move to social distancing to be able to get a solution in place for patients at, at, at pace without all that hard work that had gone before, that long hard work of change that's not particularly visible and not always very glamorous, um, then we wouldn't have been in such a good position before. So there's some, there's a really important point there about you know, um, supporting innovation and that you can't always tell exactly where those benefits are going to arise. And, uh, and, and I'd just like to add another one, if I may, which is this, um, it's very important as well, though, that we continue, Shanti's spoken about the importance of evaluation because the pandemic has driven a huge uptake in the use of technologies broadly, an increase in video consultation, a lot of increase in remote consultation. Um, we've recently published a long read showing that not all of those changes Many of those changes are very beneficial, but not all those changes are working for everybody. So we just be careful with this idea that, that we need to just lock everything in now. We've actually got to understand what, where these technologies, who they work for, when they work best. And in some cases, a reversion to face-to-face -face is not a step backwards if that improves quality. Um, because I am a big technology fan, but I'm wary of over-techno-optimism and thinking that it's always the answer um, to everything. Um, so I think it's just a, note, a slight note of caution that um, we've done these things for social distancing purposes largely in the short term, but our goal is better patient experience, better outcomes, better value, um, and we need to make sure that it's delivering delivering on those. Um, but no, there's no doubt the pandemic has accelerated um, uptake hugely. It's also, I think it's worth touching on this as well, it's also ch shifted some of those financial barriers that were in place before, mm. because Shanti's mentioned tariff, and once upon a time, the system was kind of working against this innovation by saying, we'll pay you a lot more, and I really do mean a lot more to you as a hospital, to bring a patient into clinic to give them a result that you could give them in a few minutes over a video consultation and with the removal of tariffs that barrier i think i'm right in saying shanti that barrier largely disappeared um uh, and has made therefore a lot easier to get organizational buy-in because you know trusts are there for the patient but they've also got to look after their bottom line and if you're saying to them we'll give you 110 pounds to bring somebody in and we'll give you i don't know what it was shanti but you know a quarter of that maybe less than that to a video consultation then you, you, you're setting the system up in the wrong way yeah and a couple of things I just wanted to add. I mean, I think Will makes a really important point about the patient experience because, you know, just uh, the fact that for the last year, most of the consultations have been done non-face-to-face, -face, we are now starting to bring patients back because, you know, a lot of them haven't been examined for a year. So, for example, if you look at my data, someone who's used to lots of video consultation, off late, I'm hardly using video consultation. I'm bringing them all back. So my research manager's having a panic. You know, I'm not using video consultations, but that's because normally I might alternate a video and a face-to-face, -face, but I've done no face-to-face -face for a year for that patient. So I'd quite like to see them. So you might actually see some skewed data. And I think it's very important to recognize that 
but just because everybody's seeing people face to face doesn't mean that they're not using video anymore because the pandemic is over. It may just be that they've done a lot of the work non face to face by necessity and they now do need to examine these people and see them. So that's worth bearing in mind. The other thing, of course, is by virtue of the fact that we've been in the pandemic, not just tariff, a lot of things, the government and kind of senior leaders within the NHS have allowed us to, within guidelines and within governance requirements, innovate to some extent. And we have been able to do things differently, rethink pathways, um, look at outpatient pathways, because if they're all virtual, a lot of us are doing home testing, pilots, for example, because uh, the patients are coming to clinic, they're not coming for their blood tests. So we're starting to look at how we might be able to do tests at home and so on. So it's allowed a lot of innovation because it's taken away some of these um, organizational boundaries and these external things like tariff and costs and how packages of care is commissioned and so on. So that's been a great um, improvement and it's important we sustain this going forward, I think. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's um, from both yourself and from Will, they're very strong points to sort of have this on because I think I could talk for hours and hours about it. It's a fascinating subject and it's a fascinating insight we have with it. Um, but that is ultimately what it comes down to. There's, especially in the last 12 months, there's been so many opportunities created, but it's about ensuring it's sustainable and it's sustainable both for the clinicians, for the NHS organisations, but for the quality of care that we deliver to patients. Video consultations, it seems, are going to become even more prevalent of a thing, even as we bring services back but it should always be the right solution. And I'm sure sort of hearing what we've talked about today and hearing the real insights of what video consultations could do and have been able to do even pre-pandemic in a more traditional circumstance will have been of a massive benefit to so many of our listeners. So sort of from myself, um, both Shanti and Will, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. As I say, I could talk for hours. Um, and I suppose my final point um, to each of you is uh, if those listening want to know more or want to sort of gather more insight from yourselves, where would they be best served to go? So we have, all, if they went to the Bart's Health website there and just put in video consultations, we have a little web page there mm-hmm. and all the material that we've produced um, is on it. Um, everything can be downloaded, printed, used. Um, um, all the data we've produced is there. And we've produced a lot of guidance documents. People are very free to use if they want to. Um, and similarly, Will, for the Health Foundation? Yeah, that's, that's, it's a really fantastic resource. I encourage people to look at that. And um, if people want a practical um, uh, group they can join, then we have a, a, a community called the Q Community, um, which is around 4,500 people who are interested in improvement in the UK. And they've done a great project working with members, all members of the community who have been taking up virtual consultation. Um, they've shared all their learning about how to do that. Um, and there's a community of practice there that people can join as well um, if they want to talk to other people who are doing similar work because I think one of the most powerful ways to learn how to do this is to talk to somebody else who's who's uh, who's done it um, you can read you can read a lot and you can print out all of the, the evaluations which are fantastic and I highly recommend you do that um, but um, but actually picking up the phone to someone who's done it and saying goodness me how do you make this work um that can be the best and quickest way to learn so check out the q community as well as you say it, it's about sharing the knowledge it's the great strength the nhs has again for myself thanks so much for being on today's episode 
Thanks for listening to this episode of NHE's Finger on the Post podcast. Join the conversation on social media or get in touch through the link on our website. To stay up to date with all the latest news and episodes, make sure to subscribe, drop us a rating on whatever streaming service you're using. This has been National Health Executive's Finger on the Post podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.